Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 181. In this episode, we're talking about Black Mirror Season 6. Team members on the episode from the Two Cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Dr. Brandon Hurlbert, Dr. Chris Song, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. And stay tuned for the end of the conversation for a brief epilogue with Dr. Logan Williams because there's just too much to say and so much that we realized we didn't even cover that we wanted to circle back to. So stay tuned for that. So we are so excited that the new season of Black Mirror, Black Mirror season six, just just came out on Netflix just a bit ago. And of course, Amber and I edited a volume on theology and Black Mirror, and both Chris and Brandon from our Two Cities team contributed to it. Uh, and that was such a wonderful experience. Is a huge part of our experience of the pandemic was thinking about Black Mirror and working on Black Mirror uh, together. And so we've been wondering for for several years, like what might Charlie Brooker and team do next? And we just found out. And so we want to talk about it. And so I think it would be great to start with kind of the big picture, some takeaways that the three of you had. Um, you know, thinking about what. Charlie Brooker and company have decided to do with Black Mirror, where they've decided to take the series. What were some of your guys' thoughts about season six? Well, I thought that this season was very, very unique um, compared to other seasons. There were some notable things that Brooker did in this season that he's not done before. And in some ways, maybe he broke some rules that he had before. Um, I'll mention too, I'm sure you guys have plenty to, to add as well, but the first one that I was really struck by was his use of antiquated tech. <laughs> so it's not like a futuristic world. He's taking us back into the past. And so I think it would be fun to talk about how that might actually have the estranging effect on us presently that maybe the futuristic stuff did before, but we've we live in such a different world that maybe actually looking back at the past might have that same effect that he's going for. But then the second thing, um, particularly with the last episode, is introducing uh, whether it was actually or was not, but kind of like a spiritual element. Um, and John and I had noticed and had noted in our introduction that uh, it's, it seems odd to write a volume on theology in Black Mirror because there's just very, very little um, theology done straightforwardly in Black Mirror. And so uh, it was quite interesting to see just a, a very explicit reference to not just prayer or spiritual practice, but like to otherworldly beings. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought that I thought that was really uh, fascinating. I, I think this differently than other um, seasons, though there's plenty of strange sometimes disturbing aspects uh in the in the episodes i felt that this season was was more fun uh like i just had a blast uh watching these uh i try not to i try my best not to binge watch them because i would not enjoy them as much but i, I mean i just thought that that there you know there was some jump scares there was some like weird stuff but like it's all meant to kind of evoke the horror 
Uh, there's a lot more horror themes in 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 this season um, as opposed to other ones. But it did seem that it was you know that they were meant to be fun. Even even what uh, the last episode, Demon Seventy Nine. Even though it's meant to, there's some very disturbing elements, but it is meant to be fun, um, I, I think, and it's a lot of the camera work as well. Um, so I, I just I I felt that this differently than other seasons and other episodes that featured uh, heavier themes uh, that were more disturbing and up and and intended to upset the viewer uh, to kind of reflecting on these issues. This season seemed to be uh, allow for a, a more of an enjoyable. Uh, watching experience uh, without uh, deep critical, uh, you know, reflection on tech, uh, or at least in the same way as others. Uh, yeah, I agree with everybody at this point, and um, I agree that it was fun. I laughed more in this season than I have in others. Um, when I saw the graphic for Demon Seventy Nine, I just I was like, I I love this already. I I know I'm gonna love it. Um, it seems a lot in a show that's already self-aware. It took another level of self-awareness. Netflix itself has entered the chat as its own character. Um, and so, whereas in previous seasons of Black Mirror, the joke is on the viewer. Um, this season, I think they're saying the joke is also on us. It's on everybody. <laughs> um, and so it, it, it definitely does open up different kinds of conversations. I feel like, um, Charlie Brooker has 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 done a lot of reflection over the last four years about what Black Mirror is supposed to look like, and I think that he's uh, he's he's sort of looking. I think at all of us collectively, where you know, and 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 in looking to the past, thinking about how we've gotten to where we are and and what that might mean. Yeah, the, some of the things that stood out to me um, are, are some of the things that you guys have described already. You know, as as Amber mentioned, there's some some additions to what Black Mirror can be in this season and uh, specifically the use of the supernatural. Um, and, you know, it's not just Demon 79. I mean, I think uh, Maisie Day also is is uh, important in this way, which we can we can talk about that episode specifically in a bit. But, you know, what really what really struck me about that is that, you know, Brooker had said in, 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 in the past that what Black Mirror is, is it's like, you know, Twilight Zone, but replace that supernatural component with technology. And what I think is interesting about an episode like Maisie Day is they've just made a Twilight Zone episode, like an actual Twilight Zone episode. It's still Black Mirror, and we can get to like what makes it Black Mirror, I think, uh, in a bit. But I think, you know, what really stood out to me is nostalgia. So, so it's already been touched on in terms of antiquated tech, but I really think that this might be one of the markers of the pandemic where we're in the midst of the pandemic, you know, Brooker's like, we don't need Black Mirror right now. There's not going to be a new season anytime soon, you know, that kind of thing. And people were saying, we're living in Black Mirror, right? That's, this is season six. It's happening all around you right now, right? Um, but I really think that this episode was very nostalgic, right? Even the most futuristic episode is set in the past, right? It's set in an alternate version of 1969, you know, the Beyond the Sea episode with Aaron Paul and Josh Hartnett, right? So I think nostalgia really stands out. I also think the other thing that stands out, uh, and I've talked with Amber about this, is the um, commodification of tragedy, which I think is a, a huge theme. Uh, and, and just the, the way in which we consume media is a, a strong theme as well. So those, those are some of the things that stood out to me. I really enjoyed this season. I agree with Brandon. I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, definitely notably, uh, 
so in, in relation to previous seasons, like the first episode, which we can turn to now, Joan, Joan is awful. Uh, it's, it actually has a very positive ending. It's, it's actually got like the truest happy ending in all of Black Mirror, uh, which I think is uh, very notable, right? Uh, but let's talk about that first episode, Joan is awful. Um, some thoughts about that, some themes. Um, what did you guys think about it? I think for me, what stood out was just trying to think in real time how much of the writer strike <laughs> was in the mind, the idea that um, that AI could could start generating content for the big players like Netflix and HBO. Um, it just seemed like such a such an episode for the moment, um, and we're sort of living in it right now. Um, so I just thought the timing of it was uncanny and amazing. Yeah, similar to that. I, I actually, John, I think I made that exact same comment to you after I, I saw it, that it was just unbelievable how how the timing worked out uh, because he clearly had written that script and they probably had completed the episode. Well, for sure, they completed the episode before the writer's strike. Uh, but that's not the first time that Brooker has had that kind of prescience. And so I think it's uh, it's interesting to see to see that happen again in a very explicit way. But one of the things that struck me about the episode and that I've also been thinking a lot about relative to the writer's strike is that what I hear even on the news today, what I hear people bemoaning, um, the people who are striking, uh, the script producers or script writers and also now actors is the threat that AI poses to their jobs, which is absolutely valid. Um, but one of the, there's an additional element to me that seems to be very obvious that I think is also missing in the conversation that I think this, uh, this show really brought out is that it also signals the death of culture in many respects, um, because we, we have robots just kind of making new versions of the same old things and spitting them out for our, our consumption. And that's not ever what culture has been about. That is just the, the subsuming of culture into mass media and entertainment, which is not, not at all what culture is. And so I think that uh, it, it signals the commodifying of other people's stories that they have that are theirs and, and doing this, uh, creating these replicas of them and sort of destroying the story in, in the endless, yeah, taking these stories that belong to other people and rewriting them and rewriting them and rewriting them to the point where they just become like a distorted version and uh, almost lose the dignity of the story in the first place. Joan is awful is my, I think that this is my favorite episode of, of, of the season. Um, I think um, I've been trying to figure out why and what, what made it work so well. And I think part of that is just the casting uh, ha having Annie Murphy uh, from Schitt's Creek uh, play um, the main character, uh, you know, who wishes to be, you know, the kind of star in her own show and, you know, be, you know, the main character her in her own story, which I think is a very, like, a, a very relatable uh, wish that I think many of us uh, might relate to. And, and so, and she, and, and her wish comes true. And basically, you know, she becomes the main character in a story that follows her exact life and it catches and exaggerates all of her flaws and all of the, the things that she does and it ends up spiraling out of control. She loses her job. She loses her uh, 
boyfriend or fiance, one of those two. Um, and it just all spirals down until she figures out that ah, she can get revenge uh, by doing some really crazy things. I want to spoil it too much, but uh, you know, Salma Hayek then comes in and plays her, and it's like, what? How'd you get? How'd you get Salma in here? You know, like it's amazing. Um, and and then they kind of team up, and it's ah, oh, it's so nice, and it's such a fun story. And then all at the, at the very end, you get Michael Sarah coming in from nowhere who explains that oh actually we're we're in a you know a, a movie within a movie within a movie and you're not even the you're not even source annie you know you're so whatever the person's name is uh and i just think what works is this kind of revealing aspect but still make it you know this insane you know reality that could probably never actually happen but the fact that there's some real major touch points. I think one of them is I w I want to be a ma I want to stop being, you know, a side character. I want to be the main character in my own story. I think it's really relatable. And then the worst part is, you know, how can they, how can they do this to me? She's as she's suffering all this and kind of injustice and she wants to get revenge. You know, how could they do this to me? It's like, well, did you read the terms and conditions? No, of course I didn't read the terms of condition. And it's like, I, in that moment, I thought, oh my gosh, what have these corporations uh, have? What do they have on me? What have I, you know, signed up for, uh, you know, on accident or, you know, unwittingly? And I think that's what makes this this um, episode work so well is that it's deeply relatable, even though it's, you know, even though it's fantastic in the sense of you have Annie Murphy playing her, you know, and you got Salma Hayek, you, you have Michael, so you have all these, these these top class actors uh, and um and the the storyline is fantastic but it's still deeply relatable at a, at a human level which i think is what makes it work yeah that relatability um what I, what i think is so interesting is that that scene when the um person who kind of represents like the you know the mastermind behind like streamberry right this uh alternate netflix uh when when she's explaining how originally this kind of self-tailored content was you know, more positive, right? Like mm. so, so and so is awesome, right? We learn that this is this is a ubiquitous thing. There's all kinds of, you know, everybody is everybody is awesome. Everybody, you know, each individual person, right, has their own little like Netflix or Streamberry uh, TV show of themselves that they could watch, and they realize that that actually wouldn't uh, push viewers to continue consuming it because. If you were to flip it and make it negative, Joan is awful, right? Bob is awful, uh, Terry is awful, whoever, right? Uh, if you were to flip it, uh, it would tap into this neurotic, uh, you know, aspect of the viewer, and they wouldn't be able to stop watching, and 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 it would just drive the entertainment value through the roof. And I just thought that was a very revealing comment about the nature of these algorithms uh, and and the the way that they are kind of. Um, uh, guiding our hand towards certain content and platforms choosing certain types of shows and things like that, um, which taps very nicely into the next episode, which we can uh, turn to uh, in, in just a moment, Locke Henry. But what I want to say as well about that is I love how Joan, Joan is Awful really sets up this season as actually being a very integrated season. So when Joan is watching Streamberry or she's flipping through Streamberry, they come across 
Lock Henry as a movie that they could watch, which of course we know is the film that they make at the end of the very next episode of Black Mirror, right? Uh, Lock Henry, which we can talk about more explicitly. But there's all kinds of fun little Easter eggs as she is uh, shifting through the streamberry there's there's a space fleet from uss callister there's a there's um something about the jerome f davies guy from bandersnatch and there's uh uh bother guts from from uh, uh 15 million merits there's all kinds of ones but you know what else is there is there's a documentary and you have to actually pause it super quickly i had to try this a million times to get it right because she flips through the top the top of the uh uh, uh streamberry so fast but if you pause it just right there is a documentary about smart the prime minister in demon 79 the very last episode of this season and it just has his eyes um uh, kind of crossed out and it says smart question mark and it's very obviously the prime minister from demon 79 so this this season is very integrated in some interesting ways there's 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 another example in the next episode that we could talk about in just a second but i just love that i think that uh unlike previous Black Mirror episodes, which have a lot of backwards-looking Easter eggs, this season has forward-looking Easter eggs, which I think is really cool. And really, unlike the way that the anthology series has tended to just be kind of um, uh, atomistic, I really do think that this season might be the most integrated of them all, at least in terms of those fun little direct connectors. But I also think thematically, so I think this might be a good way to transition into the next episode, Lock Henry, which, like I said, is a film that they can watch in Joan is Awful. What were some of the thoughts you all had about Lock Henry? Very uh, non-importantly, uh, but I spent the majority of the episode being like, have I been there? Was I, I could we just went to the, the highlands and, and, and we and we actually went to the town that they that it's uh, the main part is filmed in. And I was just like. I don't want to be that guy who just thinks, oh, I've been to Scotland and I'm this is in Scotland. And I obviously went to the same place because Scotland's kind of big in that sense. But I actually did. I, I went to the to the to the town and it's just as beautiful. Very unimportant comment. But there, there you go. And you clearly made it out just fine. Right? Thank you for bringing tourism to uh, what's the town's name? <laughs> I, for, I forget. But yes. Uh, it, you know, no, but I mean in real life. Oh, um, uh, in, 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 I can't pronounce it. And I had okay. the whole time. <laughs> oh, we can call, yeah, we can call it Lock Henry. That's easier. It, Thanks for bringing tourism to Lock Henry. In Inverary, right? Inverary, yeah. Yeah. Picking up on the theme that you mentioned about Joan is Awful and them explicitly saying that, recognizing producers, recognizing that people are going to watch the Joan is Awful rather than Joan is Great or these happy, wonderful stories. They like the gore. They like the tragedy. They like the, um, the, the kind of... Um, the shame that comes from watching the failures or the tragedies of other people and how they've recognized that just consumer habits, that that's where, that's where they lie. And this episode really picked up on that. And, but I keep thinking about, and I think this season, maybe more than others, 
really, really foregrounded the human nature part of what Brooker does, because he, he said, and I think we quoted this in our intro that he says, these, this, these are not stories about tech. These are stories about humans and how humans, human nature relates when you to tech. And when you have this technological overlay on human nature, but these are ultimately human stories. And I think he really, really, really brings that out in this season that that's what this is. So that tendency of humans being more inclined, more gravitate more to the the gore than the great um, is something that is, is, is truly human. I mean, I, I was thinking about like the gladiators and how stadiums are just packed by wanting to see that kind of stuff. And so Locke Henry really picks up on the commodification of other people's pain and how it brings us a certain kind of pleasure that this is not a new thing. This is not something that, that we have been shaped into or malformed into because of technology. Um, algorithms definitely push us in that direction, but there's something about human nature that makes us actually lean towards those things and want, and we have an appetite for those things. It's not just the commodification of, of shame and of tragedy as, as, as both Amber and John have mentioned, but it's the idea of commodification making it each individual's own uh, experience of it. So you get to have ultimate suffering and Joan gets to have ultimate suffering and so does Brandon. Um, it's this idea uh, that they start with in Joan is Awful is I, wanted, I don't feel like the main character of my story. Well, be careful what you wish for because boom. Um, and in the same way, these struggling filmmakers um, you know, like don't make a documentary about eggs. You know, let's make it about the town. And they become a part of the story in ways that they never would have wished for. But in some ways, in the age that we live in, the price of, of, of going big, going viral, having as many eyeballs on you is to, uh, is to broadcast your own, your own tragedy and your own suffering. But I, I do think there's there's a nuance between Davis, so that's the the, the male character, and Pia, um, the, this couple, right? Like Davis, I think, is the most um he he's the most invested in the egg story. And when he's trying to describe it to his mom, you know, he's like, you know, this is a piece of nature that has not been commodified. Like he explicitly says that. So like such a terrible harbinger of what's to come, right? But I don't think he actually ever gets sucked into really wanting to tell this story. He, you know, obviously as it turns out, it's as this horrible story that's basically about his parents, right? Um but but it's Pia who convinces him. And it's because he's like, you know, committed to his girlfriend that he's happy to change the, the trajectory of their um, uh, of their project. But I don't think he ever really is like I don't think he's seeing dollar signs and like, you know, I really think that. So the tragedy, right, is that the person who of the two of them who is most interested in cashing in um you know dies and doesn't get to experience it and the one who didn't even want to do it in the first place is the one who you know gets the grandeur but i think that scene when he's pulling the 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 napkin and his his not the napkin but the little note that his mom gave him you know this is for your film or whatever i really feel like he he's not experiencing like you know regret like oh this this wasn't worth it i think it's like he, you know, because he never wanted to make it in the first place. I think it's like 
um, a, a very different sort of experience. It's not like the emptiness of fame. I, I think it's a very different feeling. You know, it's it's um, it's like we should have made the the egg documentary. You know what I mean? It's more like that. It's it's yes, I I, I you know, but but also I feel like it's a really complicated scene because I think he's also like this is this is also something like my mom made me made for me like like maybe a duty that that promoted that that kept him making the documentary like to his mom which is a weird a weird sense of duty but i i feel like it's a really complicated scene actually and i feel like his motivations are really uh complex yeah um and, and i feel like i mean the in terms of the storyline itself is though there's some interesting you know takes it's basically get out it's the it's the show Get Out, but it, it, or it's the film Get Out. Except that the, the the twist is, what if they what if the get the you know what if Get Out was made into a movie about a movie uh, or a show about a show, and then and they were trying to reflect on, and it's like if you went through that experience, you know what would you you know what would, what would be your thoughts, and if if you found out that it was your own parents that were the serial killer. Uh, uh, type of people and you never knew the entire time. And, um, you know, what would that experience be like? And I, I felt, I, I felt like the story in, in my mind, Locke Henry was, the concept was in, more interesting than the actual story. Cause most of the story was just kind of like, you know, that something bad is going to happen the entire time. And you're just kind of, it's get out. I mean, there's even, there's a lot of the, the elements of race in there as well. Like his mom asks the girlfriend, like, and, and where are you really from dear? You know? And she's like, God, mom, don't you're like, don't say that, you know, that kind of those, those kind of vibes that kind of keep happening throughout the, uh, the show so you know that something bad is going to happen and even when it does happen that's not the end right it keeps going about the making of the film and then it shows them trying to you know cutting the the the, the scenes together and using old footage and almost the, the show almost restarts as if it's the actual film uh so i do th i do think you're you're right that it is it's trying to wrestle more with the aftermath of these events and thinking about uh and focusing on 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 davis the main character um as he's kind of wrestling with the trauma of filmmaking and his own trauma of being uh, a child of these of these monsters yeah so then then we have the next episode in the series beyond the sea with aaron paul josh hartnett uh, this is the longest episode uh, of the of the season, and maybe the longest episode of all Black Mirror episodes. It's it's basically like a proper film. It's eighty minutes, and um, it's set in the past, and it's set in an alternative past because it's actually quite futuristic with the whole uh, astronaut uh, and sort of embodied avatar uh, dynamic. Uh, let's let's talk about uh, our thoughts on on this episode, Beyond the Sea. Well, this is my uh, version of Brandon's comment about the last episode about Lock Henry. But I was at, uh, I was visiting with some friends. I'm studying in Copenhagen right now. And I was visiting a little Danish um, fishing village outside of Copenhagen this last weekend. And um, 
it just really, really struck me as I then watched the episode, how many nautical and, and actually fishermen village themes that there are in the show. So obviously there's the title beyond the sea, so you can get a hint there. But then of course the song that is played at the very beginning and, and at different points in the episode is La Mer, like the sea. Um, and then different ways that they do, um, they make a spaceship look like a, a ship. And, but one of the things that, one of the stories that I, I learned about at this little Danish fishing village called Drauer is that they have these little dog figurines in all of the different windows, not all of them, but in a lot of the different windows. And so as you're walking by the cute cobblestone streets, you see these little dog figurines in the windows. And my friend told me that they actually, that it's the fishermen's wives that would keep those little figurines in the windows. And when the dogs with this little pair of dogs and when they're facing outward, it means that it's a signal to their lovers that their husband's gone and is at sea. Um, but when those dogs are facing inward, it means no, don't come. He's home. <laughs> um, and, and I just thought, wow, that's interesting that you even have this question about uh, what it's like to, to have uh, your husband gone away from, away from you for an extended period of time and the pressures that that creates. And in the way that they, in this show, we're trying to create a link um, between this, this faraway distant seafaring voyage and then um, the present. So anyway, I, and even if you look at when they go into the town, you hear, I watched the second time, you hear seagulls uh, in, in the background. So they're constantly evoking this like nautical theme. And, and I thought that it was very interesting it was very interesting how it played on some of the very real human challenges internal to that life. Yeah, this is the episode that captivated my imagination the most um, of, of all of the episodes, because, you know, what I love about Black Mirror is the way it causes me to think about what if this technology actually existed? How would it really get used? What would it look like? And I love how Black Mirror just zeroes in on a very you know, intimate storyline. They could tell a million stories with the technologies that they imagine, but they tell a very specific, intimate storyline and really dig into the details of how it might work out for a particular person or couple or, or, or whatever. And I think this is a great example because if astronauts, right, had the capacity to uh, interface with, with the real world, with their families, um, of course they would utilize it. Of course they would want to utilize it. And of course they would prob probably be more ambitious with their missions and certain corporations, uh, certain uh, countries, nations would be more ambitious with their um, adventures, with their expeditions, because the astronauts would would have some ability to interface with their families and not just commit to a four-year journey or whatever. And I just think, oh, you know, that's that's a remarkable thought, just imagining that. Um, but then the the particulars. I love how they. I love how this episode addresses the particulars of that. How how society around would react to you know these these uh, avatars, right? Uh, like what sadly happens to Josh uh, Hartnett's family, right? This kind of you know creepy, almost uh, Charles Manson type thing. I wonder if there's meant to be a, a connection between oh, the Charles 100%. Manson with Shannon Tate and uh, all of that. It, it, it's there. That was a vibe I got anyways. I didn't look into it, but the, the, um, uh, but just the, the reaction, right. To the, to the astronaut 
uh, bodies, I thought was super interesting. But then also the dynamic that you're talking about, Amber, with the sexuality, right? And the way that like, you know, uh, Aaron Paul's wife, right, has this kind of weird, frustrated relationship uh, with, with, with Aaron Paul. But what we see with Josh Hartnett, which is interesting, right, is there is some kind of sexual relationship there, but it's 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 you know it's it's one directional, right? It's one directional. There's no reciprocity, which does like raise a question about the nature of these bodies, right? Um, even the the Charles Manson group, like they wonder if Josh Hartnett, like you know, has genitals. Like there's an explicit you know, comment about that. And it also like explains like why Aaron Paul and his wife might not, you know, be, be, um, uh, uh, um, connecting. Right. And so like Amber, what you're talking about is like, on the one hand, the, their presence, you know, mitigates some of the issues of like fishermen at sea, but yet without the kind of like sexual component, it doesn't obviously fully mitigate that. So there's a weird kind of like presence and absence dynamic there uh, in in uh, in this episode. Yeah, um, going back to the theme of commodification of suffering, um, I mean, in some ways, Beyond the Sea is is um, the most intense and personal example of that. Um, and so, you know, Josh Hartnett's character obviously um, experiences from afar and up close you know, unimaginable suffering. Um, and there is a symmetry um, in the in the denouement of, you know, Jesse Pinkman's character. <laughs> I don't even remember the real name of, of his character, Aaron Paul, Jesse Pinkman, uh, the second dude. Um, there, there's a real symmetry, the blood on the walls, um, and you're, uh, you're, you're left to grapple with, you know, my suffering now can become yours in a very real way because of this technology. Um, if we watch the show flatly, I think that that message is loud and clear. I think it, it lands. Um, John and I were sort of going back and forth on whether or not um, we're actually seeing what we're seeing. Um, meaning does, does Josh Hartnett um, do exactly what was done to him, which is murder, um, his family members, because you're never shown, um, you're never shown anything beyond the blood on the walls. Um, and uh, I mean, obviously massive spoilers, but uh, the, the, the reason I don't think that there's actual murder at the end is just the way the show ends. The pull up a chair, let's talk. Um, and Jesse Pinkman giving this sort of resigned, oh, like, that's not how anybody would behave. Um, at least that's not how I would behave under um, if something similar like that happened to me. Um, and the reason I think that there's there's merit to the idea that um, what we saw at the end wasn't an actual murder was the the the, the little detail of linseed oil um, that 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 never nothing gets thrown away in Black Mirror. The idea that you can thin paint without muddying up the color. Um, the fact that he's a painter and that he has all of these supplies. Um, you very well can imagine that this is not murder, but just at least see how how it would feel like to be in my position. Um, and maybe we can talk about me continuing to share the avatar kind of thing. I don't know. It's it's a theory, but um, I, I'm I'm sticking with it. <laughs> That's that's really fascinating. I, I I would not have thought of that. I I, I would have imagined that you know the uh, kind of the end where 
they're forced to kind of keep working together is because it's a two man crew um, and they need to do the mission. The, the mission that we have no idea anything about. It's it's so unimportant to to the audience, except that it's the only thing It's the MacGuffin. It's the thing that keeps them going. But uh, you also can imagine at what, you know, neither of them, if if they are killed, neither of them have anything to return home to. So what really is keeping them going? Uh, and we don't get the answer. But I, I do like that that theory, Chris. I, I think um, I think you might have persuaded me at least a little bit. I kind of want to push back on it a little bit. Um, <laughs> I, I, I get what you're saying. And, and one of the things that I noticed, especially the second time around, was the, for lack of a better term, artistic elements in the, the final scene of it really did look like a big brush stroke of blood on the walls and, you know, the, the pool of blood that's on the floor and that sort of thing. And, and also the, the blood that's on his hands, you know, so it, it does look like paint and I, I paint that's thinned. Right. And I, I, I can see that, but, um, I, one of the things that I noticed was that David, was reading um, the illustrated man. And that's one thing in this season is the books, the book titles are super, super important. And he was reading the illustrated man by Ray Bradbury. And I looked it up because I had never heard of this before. And it's science fiction. And in this theme of like science fiction is very important in that science fiction novels, very important in that episode. And even uh, has communicative qualities about what's going on. Um, especially the gift that he gives to Lana. But anyway, The Illustrated Man by Ray Bradley, I, I looked it up and, and basically it's short stories highlighting the, uh, like the cold mechanics of technology versus the human psyche. So it's, and it's an anthology series. So in some ways it's like the original Black Mirror was uh, this, this, uh, this novel written in the 50s. And one of the stories um, in this thing is about people who live on the moon and they explicitly say that it's like a penal colony in the on the moon and they say that if you've lived away from earth for longer than six months and not returned then basically it may your body changes so much that you might as well not return to earth and so people don't try to escape because of that so thinking about that at that final scene when he like pulls up the chair and he sits down the, the phrase that came to my mind was their link was broken to the world. Like both of them have no more, don't have a link to the world anymore. And it makes no sense for either of them to return. And so what else are they going to do? They basically, they're on an equal playing field. They're, they've both been, uh, been severed from that. And so whatever, just kind of finish this thing. That was how I, I thought it that granted that's much more of a, a nihilistic, uh, way of interpreting the ending. I could see yours as well, Chris, but I, I think there was something significant about the link being broken at the end. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that it's a minority opinion. Um, and, uh, I think that the, the show is definitely pushing us in that direction. Um, there's a real symmetry there. Um, the only difference between the links being broken is that Josh Hartnett is the aggressor. He is the one that breaks the link. So there's no chance of them harmoniously being out floating into the sea space together. At least in my mind, I just don't see how that happens. Whereas the the Charles Manson 
hippie group, they've turned themselves in. There's no reciprocity. There's no retribution at all. And uh, yeah, it's 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 definitely an episode that's staying with me. I, I still think about it. Um, and um, as the show was developing, the setup itself was just amazing. I was like, I don't know how they're going to end it, but I I love this. I think it's incredible. I I did enjoy it as well. But if if you think if if the, if the government and the, the space agency in this in this series was really smart, they would have put the avatars in the ship. And the the astronauts on <laughs> on Earth, and they could have just linked back and forth. And I don't know why they they chose to do the difficult thing, but you know this is the logic of of these of of sci-fi. Doesn't that's hilarious? Be- I never even thought of that. It would solve <laughs> the sexuality issues, especially. Yeah, it would. Yeah, there would be. A, yeah, and no and no I'm, one would get harmed. It would literally the whole. Gosh, yeah, that's amazing. I'm well, so glad you brought that up because I I had the same thought, and I thought that the the real evil people in in season six are the lawyers. They are the ones that are not doing their job. Like Joan is awful. Like the lawyers just bend over and go, oh, yeah, read the terms and conditions, the fine print. They have you every which way. It's like no lawyer that good would ever say that they would say we're going to file an injunction. We're going to do this right away. Um, Yeah, the lawyers are awful. Wow. That's that's an amazing solution there, Brandon. Well, let's shift to uh, Maisie Day now. So Maisie Day, right you know, in terms of the sequence of the season, right, this is the first episode that really goes beyond anything that Black Mirror uh, has ever done before, because it's introduced the supernatural element, at least if you regard this uh, idea of a werewolf, right, being supernatural. It's got a naturalistic, like, mechanism for how you become a werewolf, but it it certainly goes beyond anything else in Black Mirror. I saw Charlie Brooker in an interview said that in an ideal world, he would like it where the first time you watch it, it says Black Mirror. And then the second time you watch it or go to watch it, it says Red Mirror. So he he thinks of this as being compatible more with Demon 79 in terms of this kind of, you know, new new kind of branded Black Mirror type episodes that go beyond technology a bit. But I do think that this is still fundamentally a Black Mirror episode because of the paparazzi components. You know, like I audibly gasped at the end when when she pulls up the, the camera uh, as the as the woman, the werewolf celebrity woman, you know, puts the gun uh, to her head. Like I audibly gasped. Like that was so shocking to me because of, you know, she was the one who really initiated the release of this werewolf, right? Um, and just that whole thing uh was um was uh was uh i thought uh just really shocking is the is the reason that she's so Maisie day follows a you know is is uh you know there's a celebrity who is being oppressed by the paparazzi and that's the 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 main character is part of the paparazzi uh was trying to get the money shot so it's very much like nope (laughs) uh you know the money shot um and there's all these similar themes and the uh the celebrity uh, has hit somebody in this you know she's on set and she she accidentally where well, we we don't really know but it seems like she kills somebody and then obviously she's overcome with grief and trauma and she's day drinking etc etc et and she needs to get help uh to get uh help so uh, psychiatric help she hires someone they hire out this big private uh, estate of uh, uh, uh rehab center and she turns into a werewolf and then kills basically everyone 
uh, except for the main character and who 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 gets gets the you know who who kills her. Um, but I read on I read somewhere online that she that the that the main character or the the the, the celebrity hits somebody who's a werewolf and she gets bit by the werewolf. Yes, yes. And so she's not suffering from trauma and grief. She's suffering because she's a she's a werewolf. Yep, yep. So there's two, there's two, yeah. So there's two, there's two lines of evidence there. So she has these like flashbacks uh, where she's remembering the accident, and we we get those inductively like throughout the rest of the episode. And it's at the very like towards the end where we actually see the the werewolf bite her, bite her hand. Um, and, and when she's in the, when she's being driven around the next day, she's got like a bandaid on her hand and we think it's uh, related to the glass that cut her when she, uh, broke her wine glass, but it's related to the, the bite. But then additionally, if you recall when she's doing the day drinking thing, um, the maid comes in and, and the house is just completely destroyed, like completely destroyed. And oh. she, she knows she needs help. Um, and she she calls this guy um, to help her. And we think he's like just addiction help. Right. And she's like and the, and they're meeting on the couch and the guy's like, first thing is you need to know that you can't control this. And and basically the thing is the night before she was a werewolf inside that house. And so they have her set up in this retreat center um, to basically, um, you know, you know, and then she's like, she's like crying. Right. And she's like, can, can you make me better? And she's like, really, really intense. Like, can you make me better? And he's like, well, we just need to get through tonight and tomorrow. So it's re it's really about just the full moon sequence. Right. So it was the night before that night and the next night um, it, she was a werewolf uh, earlier in the episode, but, but cleverly the episode was set up to make us think she's just, yeah, responding oh, to trauma and grief. <laughs> this is why I love this episode because as she turns into a, you can see, you can understand like what's about to happen as they're taking the chains off her and stuff, and and everyone else is obsessed with the the cameras and getting the shot, and and you like you know what's about to happen, you know it, and it just like keeps building up, and then suddenly breaks out, and she's a werewolf and kills everyone, and it's like awesome, but. It's so disorientating with the um, with the paparazzi cameras just going off. It's like strobe lights. It's it's wild. Yeah, and again, like it, it, I'm just just tracing the themes. But again, and to state the obvious, what what happens when you publicize what should not be, um, and what when you want to uh, transmit broadcast um, things that that should be kept very private. Um, even disastrous at, consequences <laughs> even at the very beginning right remember the very beginning um we we find out that she's been following this actor who's from the sea of tranquility which is a wonderful tie-in to the nosedive episode and and all of that so fun easter egg stuff but he but he he's been having this affair right and those pictures are published but but when she's driving away he screams you effing animal and I do think there's this connection of like, who are the monsters in this episode? It's the paparazzi, right? That that's the that's the 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 nastiness. But this idea of publicizing what should not be publicized and the the trauma that comes from that. So so with with the guy, because he killed he kills himself shortly after that. It's just like this the kind of string of tragedy from commodifying and publishing on tragedy. Well, and I, I think this question of how do how do we make decisions like putting ourselves in the from the perspective of the paparazzi for a moment 
um, they were willing, obviously, to sacrifice morals for money. Uh, morals don't really exist if there's money involved. And in fact, that's something that uh, the, the main character re- wrestles with because she walked away from, um, from the job at one point. But then she decided to come back because she needed money. And so she was willing, uh, on balance, she was willing to go for that. But it also, um, I think, shows what happens when you do that and how you sacrifice, uh, you give up your very humanity in doing that. So looking at the paparazzis and how they were, I mean, she would stay all night in her car. She lived a really terrible life for this kind of job. But then that one guy who was taking, who remained when all the other paparazzis left, when the, uh, when the woman had turned into the werewolf and he was staying there getting that last shot and that last shot and that last shot. And then did he actually die or did he? Yeah, I think so. Um, and so he sacrificed his life for this thing. So it's, it's kind of this nihilism, this consumerist nihilism where there are no values aside from money. And even your life is not anything you need to put your life on the, on the line in order to get the money shot because otherwise your life is just not worth living. So I think it highlights the nihilism of, of the hyper consumerist culture that we're in. And then on top of that, you have this question of who the monsters are, which is definitely played up in, in other episodes as well, particularly the next one. Yeah. I think that, I think the paparazzi element is why this is fundamentally a black mirror episode. Why why the technology actually is more important than the supernatural or monstrous. But then we get the final episode, Demon 79, which is branded as a red mirror, which is this fresh thing that they're, they are trying out with Black Mirror. I sort of liken it to, uh, I'm a metal guy, I sort of liken it to when you have like a, a hardcore album or a metalcore album and the final track, maybe it's a hidden track, is like them playing an acoustic song, right? It's sort of what it's like to me. It feels like a hidden track or an extra track that's like, you know, a little bit different. Um, what did you guys make of, of uh, this episode, uh, Demon 79? And uh, what was, you know... How do you see it sort of tying into Black Mirror? Well, in some ways, um, you know, technology and the supernatural go go hand in hand. There, there are two ways of talking about the same reality. What are ways that we can transcend reality or explain things that are unexplainable? Um, Demon seventy nine uh, definitely does that. Um, in my in 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 my reflection of it. Um, it was a hard to watch episode. The, the, the killing scenes are difficult to get through. It's like, ah, like you, you feel her pain and you go through the struggle. Um, as a Bible scholar, I'm struck one by how, how thoroughly grounded they are in sort of the rules of engagement of demonic beings. Um, demons lie. Um, so like he tricks her into thinking I'll be out of your life forever. And he's like, no, I lied about that. Um, uh, and they, they also, there's this element of permission. They need to be granted permission to enter. Um, there's something very, uh, 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 there's something that, that follows a rule of engagement that, um, that's, that, that seems to be part of our, our tradition in, in the world of the Bible. Um, so that to me is, is very striking. Um, and I keep thinking about sort of this, this episode as a, as a version of the trolley problem. Um, you know, you get to uh, who, you know, who, somebody's going to die. Who is it going to be? It's either the world or these people. Um, and 
in the end, I feel that um, that the show is sort of making us question, well, what in this world is worth saving anyways? <laughs> if if it's going to if it's going to go to hell in 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 one version or of, of another um maybe we're whimsically left better just to float off into oblivion with with somebody um i don't know i th i think there is something so uh visceral about this episode is that it 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 felt it is the present even though it's set in the past like we still have a lot i mean maybe Maybe I, just thinking about in the UK, you know, so much, uh, so 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 much language about you know anti-immigration, uh, you know, a lot of the more populist, uh, nationalist uh, rhetoric of um, uh, of the uh, the what is his name? I can't remember. Um, Smart, whatever the the prime minister, the guy who's running for office, and but there's that there's that that moment where. Uh, He's getting his his like the shoes, you know, uh, try on shoes with the other person. And he just and she's like, well, I'm actually kind of into this person. And he's just like, look at me. I will have your vote. I know what's and, and you're like, this is the demon, not not uh, the, the the guy who's uh, dressed, the, you know, uh, not uh, Boney M, not yeah, Boney M. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that's that's the demon, you know, not not this guy who's come and, and you know, trying to say who's really trying to save the world you know it does cost the lives of three people but that is less demonic in in many ways than than um than this guy who's who's talking about anti-immigration and nationalism yeah i thought it was a very brooker way of handling the supernatural because he left us with a lot of questions uh for one uh was this as far as the story goes was this supposed to be a real thing like there really was this demon that came or was this just she was crazy she was hallucinating this was just a mental illness uh so that would be a naturalistic explanation for what it was that we saw um which i think is a, certainly a, a very plot i went back and watched it a second time with that in mind and i think that's a very plausible interpretive framework um but then i also think that what might support that is exactly what you were saying brandon that the 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 real demon of the episode was not the quote-unquote supernatural guy but it was the the politician the person who's creating systems and structures of this world that are evil and perpetuating that and i think that that scene that you mentioned was absolutely pivotal so it's almost like workers saying okay we need to stop thinking about this like crazy spiritual stuff and look at the present reality and structures where that is created here and and now and what might also lend to it is um, like I mentioned earlier in Joan is Awful, there is a documentary about smart. And one of the things that we do see in this episode is that flash forward sequence where it's like, here's here's smart ascending to power and having all of this, um, you know, uh, authority and everything. And we see those little metal dogs from Metalhead in uh, season four, right? Those robot dog things that just basically go around killing people, right? Um, and in other words, like, he oversees the development of that technology and the implementation of it, right? Which is a very dystopian thing. So it's almost like this episode, although it doesn't center on technology, it is about the, the power, the authority, authority structures, the system that lead to this kind of manipulation of technology within society. So in some ways it is very 
it is very black mirror-y and it's obviously integrated like 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 with those easter eggs and things um but it is very black black mirror-y but sort of looking at it from the other angle we might even say this is very pauline of paul uh, of charles brooker because of the powers and the principalities and the the authorities and the archai and exousiae and all of that and that might be sort of brooker's way of uh, merging the demonic with uh human powers but uh, anyways, I think uh, this has just been a, a fantastic conversation. Uh, it's wonderful to jump on here with all of you uh, and talk about this show that uh, that we all love. And uh, if only, you know, there were more episodes because five is just not enough for me. I very much am looking forward to season seven. But uh, thank you all uh, for this uh, fantastic conversation. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, everybody. All right, so we've just concluded our conversation and Logan and I felt like there's just a bit more that we needed to say, some things we wanted to clarify and some things that we wanted to add because this season is, is just so rich and we just love Black Mirror that much. So Logan, welcome to the conversation. Greetings from Jerusalem. I apologize that my uh, I don't have my microphone with me, so my audio is a bit, a bit sad, but um, greetings, hello. Uh, you sound fine, it's all good. So let's uh, let's chat. So, um, what were some of the things that you uh, took away from uh, from Black Mirror season six? Things that stood out. So one of the things I found interesting, and they, I think they do this every once in a while, is they they do episodes that don't actually feature any kind of intense technology. So I think Shut Up and Dance is one of those, which which kind of features you know somebody hacking uh, a camera, but it's not really like. It's not the kind of dystopian advanced technology they usually use, right, in their in their episodes. Um, so one of the things I thought was interesting is Locke Henry, of course, doesn't have any kind of technology whatsoever, let alone kind of advanced technology. Uh, but I think that episode kind of lulls you into this false sense of security that you think maybe there are other episodes that do something similar. Uh, so then when you get to Maisie Day, for about 85% of the episode, you think it's another one that's very similar to Loch Henry um, until you get to the end when you realize actually this is not only not a normal kind of world one, nor is it a technology one, but it's actually a, a monster flick, <laughs> uh, which is which is really surprising. And I think really, you know, you because of Loch Henry and because of the order in which they put it, you don't feel like that episode is going to have to have some kind of twist. Right, you just kind of think, oh, this is like another normal one, like Lock Henry. There's no technology. There's no kind of crazy thing. Like it is just kind of the world that we live in. Um, so I thought that kind of ordering of the episodes in that way was actually really intentional, and and therefore even made the twist at the end of Maisie Day even more crazy, mm. um, which I thought I thought was maybe I'm reading into it, but I feel like that has to have been intentional. I think that's a great point. I think that's a great point. And I think Black Mirror itself, because it hasn't really delved into anything supernatural or monstrous in this way. Also, you know, you just don't expect that from Black Mirror, generally speaking. Um, but you know where my mind went, because, you know, just thinking in Black Mirror terms, where my mind initially went when um, the actress began to morph into a werewolf, my my initial thought was, oh, we're in a simulated world. This is uh, this is not the real world. Um, you know, and of course, we don't get that. Mm. We don't we don't get the sort of zoom out. Mm. You know, this is a Joan is awful, like layers upon layers of reality or mm. something like that. It's just 
nope she's a freaking werewolf uh, it's just that's yeah. just how, how this episode uh is and uh you and i have been talking about um some of the sort of precursors and harbingers of this reality that occur earlier in the episode and in our conversation uh with with amber chris and brandon we noted some of those but there's even more that we could we could have mentioned then but but we didn't so some of the things that you know, you and I have already chatted about is, you know, and this is a clarification from what I said in the episode. I, I yeah, because you I, were I, wrong. I, I was. I realized <laughs> I was wrong, and I'm I'm glad you pointed this out because um, mm. the yeah. thing that I realized that I was wrong about is that she doesn't get bitten, and this is something that you noticed. Um, that uh, what we actually yeah. see, if you look really closely, is saliva sort of flying out of the yeah. werewolf's mouth. And I and I've realized in hindsight after reflecting uh -huh. on this is from a writing standpoint, this is the only reason why you you introduce the idea that um she's cut her finger at all, right? The whole yeah. the whole scene with the wine glass breaking is to set up the fact that she has an open wound and thus, you know, mm. in she's hindsight, susceptible susceptible but, to this yeah, type yeah. of uh encounter. And I, and I think the reason why that has to be the case that it has to be the saliva is that like if you think that she's gotten bitten, then that means that she got bitten in the exact same place and that the 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 bite was no worse of a wound than the cut, which which just seems like unlikely, right? Because there's no like extra bandage. Like I thought maybe what they were doing is that actually, like when I went back and rewatched it, I was like, oh, what if it's a different hand? Like, you know, and then actually it was the same hand. The cut was in the same place. And then I realized, ah, it actually, it wasn't a bite. It was the emission of saliva. And I think uh maybe i'm wrong about this i think that's how rabies is spread is by like if you're bitten by a rabbit animal it's not just the bite but it's the saliva that gets in the bite and so i think that's kind of the the assumption is a kind of similar mechanics um but uh yeah i mean i think i'm not sure if you mentioned this in the episode but of course the like again when you look at it the second time it's like it it, it dawns on you you know when she hears that it's a man like she's actually like what like and it's it's funny that like when i look at it now i'm like oh she's actually surprised like she's not fake surprised because no one's like watching her she doesn't have to like play that she's surprised um she's actually surprised and confused and i think dawns on her what is about to happen to her yeah that's a, that's <laughs> um, a really great point that's a really great point and we didn't mention this in our conversation but yeah when the um sort of uh police officer you know um is speaking with her her taxi driver and the taxi driver yes. says that some man was hit and you know of course now in hindsight it's like she thinks she hit uh, a creature of some sort like yeah and and yeah. so the, the idea that she actually hit a man is surprising to her and that is that is a really great and she uh, she great i example. think she realizes then that she or at least that's the kind of processing of like um am i like yeah <laughs> if that thing detransformed into a human right right what does that mean about me um right one other thing that i noticed on second uh watching is the the woman who's like kind of like tending for the house while she's there um when she comes back and she's like, you know, I think she like comes back and is surprised, right? You're made to think that what she sees is the damage of the house, right? But I think what she actually sees is Maisie as a werewolf. Uh, because that would, that wouldn't, if she just saw that the room was damaged, she wouldn't have called the special doctor, right? So the fact that, you know, what you see is her being like, <gasps> And then all of a sudden you cut to the scene with like the doctor arriving and then you see the damage. 
Um, so I think that it's it's actually unlikely that what the um, what that woman sees is just the damage, or else it doesn't actually explain what happens afterwards. But then you're made to think that she's just breaking stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's also another really, really subtle uh, thing that upon second watching is is really different. And another thing I noticed on second watching, and we've talked about this, is when she's actually in the retreat center and the paparazzi first get in there, we see these two goats that are uh, tied down. Oh, the- yeah. And, yeah. And, 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 you know, in a first watch, maybe we're thinking like, um, you know, this is just some weird, creepy thing. To be honest, I didn't yeah. even know- I didn't even notice. The yeah. goat on my first I think you got to think like, oh, this is just a stable and it's just really mm-hmm. inhumane that they're keeping her in in a stable but of course then it has like a human door and you're like what's that right like it doesn't really make sense but i think my thought was oh it's just like a gross you know place where they keep animals anyways yeah but but it it just further underscores that everybody knew that she's a werewolf and they have basically set her up so that she can eat throughout the night and yeah uh, you know and, and sort of uh let out those urges and not you know wreak havoc on everybody else but still be mm-hmm. able to like you know do what she needs to do uh instinctively um now there's mm-hmm. another aspect of this that i didn't mention in the episode and i and i i really wanted to and i I've, i mentioned this to you but i really think given that this episode is about werewolves right and it's like okay in hindsight werewolves exist in this world it really makes me rethink um the 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 our main uh paparazzi um uh, played by Zazie Beats it really makes me think that her roommate is a vampire and mm. the the main evidence that i point to is the way that you have that goofy interaction where the roommate is like you know please don't cook you know uh garlic and ginger uh in 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 the apartment mm-hmm. you know because it's so and he pauses and says acrid and yeah his he doesn't disdain, really know how to describe it because yeah you right. know he's like mm, it's so right uh, his, what's a normal and, way of putting it right right but his disdain for garlic and, and we you know we never see him outside it's just f you know we never see him outside but his disdain well, he's always for like garlic. he's always like very clearly retreating to his room right that is right like like they they show a number of times like him going in and out of his room right right Right? like yeah and i just wonder if if you know what's the point of those scenes right why do we need the our main paparazzi character to have um you know some kind of you know uneasy relationship with a roommate i just think if if this episode right is about a world in which werewolves are real what if her roommate is a, a vampire? I just think that that's got to be uh, at least on the table, right? His disdain for garlic has, yeah. to, has to be suggestive, I think, in an episode about werewolves. So I, I yeah, my, my hunch is that he's he's a vampire. I do feel like, yeah, like obviously the people who write Black Mirror are very careful writers, and it's very rare that they have like throwaway lines, right? Like, and by the end of an episode, you kind of realize that like everything that has been said, it's kind of like every line in most episodes is like a kind of Chekhov's gun kind of thing. Like at some point, like something that is said now develops way more significance by the end. Like, or even I, like, you know, or even at the end, like where, like the final comment where Maisie says, shoot me. Ah, that's and great, it's like, it's great. Point. Is it, is she saying, shoot me with this gun? Or is she saying, take a photo of me? Interesting. And yes. it's, it's intentionally ambiguous. And of course, at the end, she does shoot herself. 
Mm -hmm. um but then it's kind of left open to the viewer whether if after the cut yeah if she was also shot mm -hmm. by camera um mm -hmm. you know at the end but yeah right um, well that that idea of like things taking on greater significance you're right it's in so many black mirror episodes and even in this one i mentioned in our conversation already but the idea that the um the first actor that um that our our main paparazzi character takes uh, photos of he he yells uh, you effing animal as she drives away and so the yeah. idea the idea of like how the paparazzi are the true monsters in this episode and yep. and 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 sort of um setting up this kind of animalistic you know sort of comparison later uh in the episode i think is um uh, uh yeah it's it's yeah, yeah it's, cle it's well, clever it's yeah. clever writing and it rewards rewatching yeah and of course in that scene where she's transforming into a werewolf the only people who are exhibiting care for other humans are on the one hand, the, the paparazzi character, Bo, and on the other hand, the celebrity character, Maisie Day, where Maisie is saying, get away from me to understand, run, whatever, because she's concerned for everyone's life in the room. And Bo, who's like having really second thoughts about, you know, whether she should be doing what she's doing and is kind of defecting from her normal paparazzi role is the only person trying to help her the monsters in the room are the three or four other characters i forget how many there are characters who are just don't care and are just taking photos and taking photos and taking photos and all of them die <laughs> um so uh yeah even as she's transforming into a monster Maisie, she's still she's actually less of a monster than all the paparazzi apart from Bo in that room. Um, well, and it really speaks to yeah. the kind of instinctual nature of paparazzi, right? Their instinct is just to get the picture, get the picture, get the picture. Yeah. And they're just yeah. sort of stuck in this kind of instinctual. So like the, the kind of play of the animalistic sort of instincts there, I just think is like mm. really, really on point. Yeah, um, like they can't listen to, they can't listen to reason. It's just like their appetite for, mm -hmm. you know, getting, getting the photos, even when mm -hmm. like, yeah. Maisie herself was trying to resist it and be like, get away from me, you know, like, yeah. But right. I guess it's interesting that at that moment, the paparazzi kind of, they're, they're in, the fact that they intentionally ignore calls for people to say like, please get away, it's actually ends up being their demise because they think in that moment that she's just saying, get away, you're annoying. And then, and for them, that's not worth listening to. If they had realized that what she's saying is, get away, I'm about to turn into a werewolf. <laughs> and if they actually believed her, then of course they would have run. So this really shows their kind of like, just utter selfishness in that moment, even while she's, you know, trying to help them as she's turning into, you know, an animal. So Logan, I um, I know you also had a, a criticism of uh, Black Mirror season six uh, and and maybe the show more, more generally in some ways. Uh, do you want to share some of that? Yeah, so I think the show toys with the idea of AI sentience way too much. Uh, and so like on the one hand, on an aesthetic level, I just think that theme has occurred too many times. Like we already, we've already seen it in the, um, White Christmas. But anyway, so the Joan is Awful um, obviously does the same trope that actually these, you know, AI have sentience and, you know, do they have free will is kind of a different question. Uh, of course, when, you know, at the end, she's like, you know, Joan is doing it. I can't, you know, I can't stop it. She's doing it. Um, but you're still led to believe that their feelings are real and that they can be harmed. 
Um, and I actually just think this is a really dangerous idea to play with. And I don't, and I don't think that, um, I mean, I, I, like philosophically, I don't think that the kinds of AIs that we produce uh, can develop uh, consciousness, no matter how complex they are, just given the way that they, um, the way that they're set up, but that's a different conversation. Um, would get into philosophy of mind and conceptions of emergence and supervenience and whatever. Um, but I also just think like in principle, it's a dangerous idea to tour with. So, so let me give you an example. Let's say you created this dystopian world um, where um, all black people were significantly dumber than all white people. Like, you know, this is a world that's hypothetically possible, but is it responsible to depict in film? probably or or in or in um, in tv probably not because there are already kind of existing racist sentiments that that might continue to um that that might perpetuate uh you know in you you can't really get away with just saying well this is like a hypothetical it's, it's a dystopian world right like it's actually just fundamentally a dangerous thing to create like um like it wouldn't be responsible to create that kind of this hypothetical you know quote-unquote hypothetical um as, as in quote-unquote by saying you can't just defend you can't hide behind the fact that this is hypothetical uh, in the same way i actually think it's a really really dangerous idea to put the seed in people to like put the seed in people's head right to incept them with the idea that maybe ai could be conscious uh because then you know there's all sorts of really really dangerous things that can come from that for example if you think that ais or robots can be conscious um, what happens when you're adjudicating between uh, the life of a really quote unquote life of a really complex AI and the quote unquote life of a human being? Um, all of a sudden, these seem like really, really real choices. And the value of humans in relation to robots then comes into question. And, you know, and like there, there's, you know, some um, instances of people talking about wanting to give robots citizenship uh and things like that which i i just think are like this is a really really dangerous idea to mess with and to try and to just kind of depict it as a like what if situation um actually can plant a seed in people's heads that can grow into something incredibly dangerous uh and and also feed something that's incredibly dangerous and feed something that people are already getting confused about like for example like people thinking that chat gpt or some i think there was a google employee who thought his ai came alive um like these are things that humans can legitimately get confused about um but can be ethic philosophically and ethically disastrous if the general public starts to really believe that their complicated computing machines can develop consciousness and ethical worth on the same level of a human person um, so I just don't think it's responsible to depict the world of an AI and to try and, in the sense of trying to bring viewers into empathize with robots. Like, I just think that's seriously potentially disastrous. And I don't think it's like a fun thought experiment, like at all. And so I don't think they should be doing it. Um, but I think, of course, they can just hide behind like, this is a what if, you know, but in the same way, like not all what ifs are actually kind of okay things to run with. So I really hope they stop doing it. I mean, on the one hand, I think it's just objectively an uninteresting trope. Um, on the other hand, I also think like, if we really go down this path, and if then it, 
becomes really disastrous. But the, a really easy way to start going down that path is to start to create media that gives people the idea that empathizing with computed machines is a normal thing. Um, and we're already confused enough about that, that I think that is not <laughs> what television needs to be, um, you know, making us worried about, of all things to make us worried about. Um, I think Black Mirror does a really good job of making us worried and concerned and, you know, thoughtful about things in other ways. But uh, this one, I just think is like just grossly irresponsible. So I hope they stop doing it. Of course, I have no influence on this, um, but one one can hope. So this uh, reminds me of a book by Sherry Turkle. Uh, she's, she's, she was at MIT. I don't know if she still is, uh, but she wrote this book called Alone Together. And it's, um, you know, it's before ChatGPT and all that. It was only written a handful of years ago, I think maybe, maybe 2011 or so originally. But um, it's basically about how um, humans interact with social robots. And it's sort of like correlating that mm. with with the decline in empathy uh, that we have seen with the rise of digital uh, technologies and social media um, in general. But she even goes back to like Eliza, which is like a pre massive precursor to chat GPT and how people were engaging this, um, you know, language model basically uh, as if it had some type of sentience or some type of, um, yeah, consciousness that uh, was, um, you know, sort of peculiar because yeah it's very inferior to chat gpt even but yet people still started to engage it as if it was kind of like a person so in other words it was not necessarily passing the turing test but people would get kind of lulled into you know uh, interacting with it like like a human and and yeah. this this is actually played out you know with furbies and tamagotchis and you know all of these things so so hmm. As you're saying, we're confused. Neopets. By, yeah, yeah. Like we're confused by chat GPT. And this will only get more intense as AI develops. Um, but we have been confused for a while, it seems. Yeah. With, yeah. With our with our yeah. technologies. And so this will only get worse. So you're 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 yeah. right about that. Um it yeah. is when well, and the more that the more that humans interact with other humans in digital spaces right like we are so accustomed to interacting with people in in only text spaces right like on twitter via text messaging and we feel like you know real connections between people you know like when bay sends you morning texts right like like it's a and i'm not saying that's a bad thing like it's it's you know it's a it's a good tool to connect with people but i think the the more that our because we're our experience with social life is like partially in person and partially disembodied. And we think that, you know, we perceive that there's humans rightfully perceive there's humans on the other side of that. Um, we can also more easily get tricked into thinking that this only text reality actually has a conscious and human side uh, to it because we're so used to flitting between those two and assuming that, you know, behind this text is a real person or something like that, you know? Right. Uh, so right. it's, yeah. Yeah, that idea about like adjacent technologies actually sort of uh, shaping us into sort of like welcoming like these, like this sort of approach to um, AI yeah. uh, is um, uh, I think communicated really well in a book by a guy named Jacob Schatzer uh, called Transhumanism and the Image of God, where he talks about how our habits around technology shape us towards a particular end. So like, for example, when... Um, 
when you think about uh, our use of Siri or Alexa or, you know, Roombas, whatever, like we are interfacing or, you know, interacting with AI in a way that, um, you know, is on a path towards sort of like much more um, uh, integrated, you know, sort of encounters with robots, right? And, uh, and, and if we were to sort of like paint a scenario of what like the future might look like 50 years down the road with like highly integrated robotics, a lot of us would recoil and be like, oh no, that sounds horrifying. That sounds dystopian, et cetera. But it's sort of like, well, what are we doing in the present that actually demonstrates that we won't welcome that reality as we incrementally, mm. incrementally, step by step, get there, right? So, so yeah. it, it, it is the kind of thing that we actually have to think about these things presently, not just wait till they arrive. Yeah, and I guess just a clarification because I just I just realized uh, potentially interesting comparison on this front. You know, you might you might compare or contrast rather. The way Black Mirror um, depicts AI with the film She, where I think it's Joaquin Phoenix, right? Um, you know, develops this relationship with uh, this Siri kind of character, um, and I think that's that's different because it's portraying a kind of like what human relationship with with an AI might might look like, and um, you know, in in a really brutal and an honest way that like this is a real possibility but i think what's what's different about black mirror is that it actually takes the perspective of the ai to get you to empathize with the ai and i think that's just a fundamentally kind of different thing although they're portraying of course human interaction with ai um especially something like jonah is awful where you're like you know the whole episode is you getting lulled into, you know, empathizing with Joan. Um, and then like, it turns out she's an AI. And like, there's something interesting about that in the sense that like, maybe it's raising the question, you know, do we empathize with this thing, which is, which now we realize is not a person. But I don't think that's the effect that it will actually have on people. Whereas I think the film, she, it's, it's much different in, uh, you know, it's not it's not presenting the narrative from the perspective of the AI um, and trying to get you to emotionally connect with it, only to then, you know, switch on you at the end. Um, so, I mean, interesting comparison, I guess, to make in terms of how those two pieces of media um, depict and portray the perspective of human AI relations. But yeah. Well, I think this has been a great chat about uh, Black Mirror Season 6, kind of extending some of the conversation that uh, we've already had uh, in this episode and um, just some additional things that it's good to uh, to touch on. So, Logan, thanks for, thanks for joining. Thanks for adding me on in this epilogue.